Welcome to the Agora, the podcast that focuses on Greece, but also on events that are happening in our neighbourhood. I'm Nick Malkoutsis. I'll be presenting on my own today, but my co-host Phoebe Froniste is taking care of production, as always. This episode is the last in our fourth series, and to sign off, we thought we'd take a look at what's happening just across the Aegean Sea in neighbouring Turkey. There, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was re-elected at the end of May for an unprecedented third term. Nobody is really sure of what to expect from the Turkish strongman when it comes to foreign policy, but we hope to shed some light on this shortly. I've been speaking to Ilhan Uzgel, a former professor of international relations at Ankara University, to find out more about what kind of Erdogan we can expect over the next few years. Before we hear from him, though, let's set the scene. The Turkish president went into the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, in early June as the man to watch. He had objected to Sweden joining NATO, and the focus was on whether he would come to an arrangement with his other partners in the alliance, particularly US President Joe Biden, to lift his objections. In the end, Erdogan did withdraw his opposition to Sweden's membership, but only after he obtained assurances about closer cooperation on security issues and a more favourable stance in his discussions with the EU. More significantly for Greece, Washington also apparently gave the green light for the sale of 40 new Lockheed Martin F-16 fighter jets to Ankara. The transaction had been on hold amid concerns in Congress about Turkey's behaviour. Greek-Turkish relations reached a low point last summer when Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis warned US Congress to refrain from supplying Erdogan with more military equipment due to his aggression towards Athens. This intervention angered Erdogan and ties between the two leaders broke off. Relations only resumed in earnest following the deadly earthquakes in Turkey this February. Greece's swift response with assistance created a window of opportunity for Athens and Ankara to resume full diplomatic contact. And following the Vilnius summit just a few days ago, Mitsotakis and Erdogan both talked up the prospects of discussions between Greek and Turkish diplomats, even with a view to settling long-standing disputes in the Aegean. A few days later, in a TV interview at home, Mitsotakis went as far as suggesting that Greeks should be prepared for the possibility that the country will have to compromise on some issues if Athens and Ankara take their differences to the International Court of Justice. The Greek Prime Minister indicated that recourse to The Hague might be the best way to settle matters. It's rare for such a top-level Greek official to prepare public opinion at home for the possibility of a compromise. But... What can we expect from Erdogan in his third term as president? Will he be someone Greece and the West will be able to do business with? Or won't they be able to trust him? Let's hear from Ilhan. He might have some answers.
So Ilhan, let's start with the big picture. Where does Erdogan's re-election and his apparent omnipotence leave Turkish foreign policy? And by that I mean, is there an overarching strategy or is it simply the product of the will and whim of the president? And in that, will he, also, will he continue to leverage his position in terms of the Ukraine war? And is it feasible for him to carry on walking the tightrope between Ukraine and Russia while also maintaining the West's consent for this policy? Uh, first of all, it's, it's a very calculated strategy that Erdogan has been applying for, for a long time, both domestically and internationally. He's been in power for about 20 years, so he has learned how to, I mean, he's not an intellectual. He probably he hasn't read anything about foreign policy in literature. He hasn't read any academic article uh, or any book in Turkish, but he has a sense of uh, policy, foreign policy. An instinct. Yes. He's a, he's a pra- practical person, like many, many, many politicians uh, all over the world. And he, over the years, he has learned how to make uh, bargainings, how to negotiate with, with his counterparts. Uh, he has learned uh, the weaknesses, uh, vulnerability, vulnerabilities of his opponents. He has learned his uh, limits. Uh, and he's very good at transforming Turkey's power and objective power elements like its geography, its military, its uh, human resources uh, for his own political sake. So that, 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 that's a success. To be, we have to admit it that mm-hmm. it's, it's not very easy for a leader rule a country like Turkey, which has many fault lines, like you know, Kurd, like between Kurds and Turks and Islamists and seculars, and in a turbulent region where there have been wars, you know, the Arab Spring and you know, Ukraine, the Ukraine war, Ukrainian war, tensions in the Middle East, in the Caucasus, wars in conflicts in Caucasus, uh, you know, domestic. Turbulences in Iran, ISIS, etc. He had to deal with all these uh, issues and problems and conflicts, and he survived politically. And he has made uh, convenient uh, deals with the West. I mean, he's he's playing with this. I mean, he's playing with his with other countries like Sivitan. I mean, he's playing. He, he has made allies. Although they are small, I mean, like Kosovo, like Qatar, they're not strong allies, but he has made put in an ally of himself. And the best thing he could do, he he could make he could make uh, deals with his uh, counterparts, whether it's a say say it's a country or it's a like like the EU is an organization that he can offer something uh, for them. I mean, he offers Russia and Putin uh, that he can purchase as 400 missiles that no Turkish politician, except a tiny small party, can can do it uh, in in today's Turkish political scene or. He could make a bargain with the EU that he could keep the the refugees in Turkey 
in return getting some money and not criticizing him in in domestic politics in human rights and democratic backslide etc so he he can make these kind of deals and he he's good at that so his election success came at the expense of the of course the, the opposition uh turkey was not good in in terms of economy Turkey was somehow isolated. He makes mistakes domestically and internationally in the foreign policy, but he can tolerate. He could make them up. So that that that, that was his style. So that, that it's not. Of course, we were expecting that he was going to lose the elections, but he somehow survived. And he could. I mean, like more all authoritarian politicians, he makes use. He utilizes the the crises. So he he likes crises. He he use he use the Ukrainian war as much as possible for his own political gains, and he could do it. But it, each policy option has its own costs. So they come with some costs. So if you get closer to Putin, or if you if you want an assertive uh security policies uh in the eastern mediterranean they come with a cost so the, the western world which is turkey is a part so they they, they pressure on turkey and and the economy is not doing well so he has to make a decision after the elections or pre, in pre, pre-election period that he has to remake his political options and he, he decided to ally really with the with the West and align with Western policies. So that, that is where we are immediately after the uh, last elections. Okay, we'll come to that in a second. Just before we go there, just to take a bit more of a detailed or granular look inside Ankara, what's happening. Uh, Erdogan made substantial changes to his cabinet after his re-election and in the context of foreign policy, which we're talking about, the former head of the National Intelligence Agency, Hakan Fidan, was brought in as foreign minister. Do changes like this tell us anything about the power bases below Erdogan? And are there others within the system who wield influence, such as the chairman of the far-right MHP, Devlet Bakhtili? Or is this a tactical or even transactional process that's driven by the president? No, I mean, the, the both foreign minister, previous foreign minister and minister of defense, they were... Not openly, but we know that we knew that they were pro 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 US. But Erdogan replaced them with more pro pro US uh, figures. That, that, that that's one thing. And he he replaced Minister of uh, Interior, who was uh, was furiously against the US, and he was very critical of of the US. So he he lost his position. So it means it says something, and. In terms of uh, advanced ties and alliance with, with the ultranationalist party, MHP, I can tell you that uh, since 2014 and 15, at that moment, Erdogan decided to ally with the nationalist forces in Turkey. MHP is part of the story, it's, 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 it's the party, but he also had with the elements of Turkish security bureaucracy. I mean, that they were previously uh, even more even stronger so Erdogan allied himself but uh, the problem is that aligned with the nationalists and uh, secular nationalists what we call uh, at the same time 
can have its own problems for Erdogan because they also they are also composed of uh, some Eurasianist elements. I don't know how it sounds to you when I say that. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, there's a Eurasianist element in, in uh, ideological trend in Turkish uh, politics, um, partly in society because of this anti anti-US uh, sentiment has, has moved some, some intellectuals, some political figures to have better relations with, better ties with Russia, China and even, even, even Iran. But the problem is that Erdogan is trying to tilt towards the West, that, that's for sure, but uh, the, it's his alliance with these nationalists and Eurasianists, I mean, it's no, there's no problem with the nationalists, but there's a problem with the Eurasianists. So he's trying to jettison, he's trying to get rid of these Eurasianist forces. So that's why he's uh, so unambivalent in his tilt towards Ukraine, that he uh, invited Zelensky before he joined the, uh, the NATO meeting, uh, be- before he uh, withdrew his uh, objection to civilians uh, joining into NATO. So he is trying to play this game both domestically and uh, externally, in which Erdogan is, has become a master to, to play with the domestic and foreign policy uh, at the same time. Okay, uh, Ilhan, let's go to the recent uh, NATO summit in Vilnius, because maybe that will uh, uh, illustrate the, uh, uh, the, the points you're making. There, President Erdogan lifted his block on Sweden joining NATO. Some saw this as a move, along with his more reconciliatory stance, uh, as a so-called tilt to the West. So my first question is, is this wishful thinking? And beyond that, did Erdogan actually use his refusal to let Sweden join just for domestic electoral purposes? And once this ceased to be useful, did he just drop the position? Of course, he did do that before he had also secured the transaction he wanted, which was the US giving the green light for Ankara to receive F-16 fighter jets. So what's your interpretation of what happened there in Vilnius? Well, I mean, Turkey is part of NATO since 1952, uh, together with Greece, we know. And it is the only uh, international organization that Turkey has the veto power. So Erdogan is a, is a person of transactionalism, and it, it was a very good card for him. And he didn't want to lose it for nothing. So he had, he had it, and he knew that the United States needs an image of unification inside inside NATO, that NATO allies are united in confronting Russia, Russian aggression, etc. So he wanted to use it as a, as a bargaining chip for, on, for almost everything. I mean, in Cyprus, in EU, in F-16 deal, in, in the PKK, so, uh, in, in, terror, in terrorism, in Islamophobia, I mean, whatever, whatever it counts, uh, it is possible to, to use it. I mean, we know that, we knew that he, he's going to approve civilians bit in NATO. I mean, that there is no way that it, Turkey can can object it for for about for, for about ten years. Of course, Turkey will, will like 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 Erdogan did for Finland. It's going, it was going to happen. The problem is that it was a, it was a cut that Erdogan wanted to use for almost 
every Turkish, uh, every issue in Turkish foreign policy. And in, in, in terms of F-16 fighter jets, but we know that uh, the Biden administration wants to sell these fighter jets to Turkey with Erdogan or without, without Erdogan because they, they consider it uh, as, as, as a requirement of, of, of airlines. They, con- they don't consider it as, as, as a deal with, with Erdogan because they think that Turkey is an ally and Turkish-U.S. relations has, has, has been going through a, a difficult period, but they wanted to have at least one strong tie. That is, I mean, it's also in, 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 in the interest of the United States because they're selling uh, fighter jets to Turkey. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, they're not, they're, the, there's nothing that they're going to lose. And there are some conditions like you know, the Turks should not use it in, in Syria, etc. Probably in, 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 in the Asian. That, that's, that's also open for negotiation. But I mean, it was already the, 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 the problem was the Congress that, that, that was uh, a little bit dragging its foot. But after the, after Turkey's withdrawal, its objection to civilians joining into NATO. So I think that that would be also settled. Okay, Let, let's come to this point because the F-16s were a key point of friction in Greek-Turkish relations after Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis advised US Congress in May 2022 not to provide Ankara with the planes due to its aggressive behaviour towards Greece. Uh, this marked a souring of relations between Athens and Ankara until the tragic earthquakes in Turkey earlier this year. The improvement in ties has now sets the stage for potentially meaningful talks between Erdogan and Mitsotakis, who met in uh, Vilnius at the NATO summit we're talking about. Mitsotakis has already started preparing the domestic audience in Greece for a potential compromise with Turkey over issues in the Aegean, especially if the two countries go to the international course of justice in The Hague. In recent comments, Erdogan also seems keen to talk with Greece. There will be a meeting of the bilateral high-level cooperation council in Thessaloniki later this year. It's the first such talks between Greece and Turkey since 2016. But do you expect the two countries to get beyond these kinds of negotiations and into some real deal-making over the next few years? Well, I mean, uh, in essence, uh, Erdogan is pro-Western. But due to his alliance with the nationalists and Eurasians after the coup attempt in 2016, he had to play this nationalist image of leader. So he had to do something to satisfy them domestically. But he realized that he cannot go with this policy. And Turkey has already achieved some of its aims in, in terms of, you know, uh, maintaining its security, like Turkish military presence in northern Iraq, in, in northern Syria, in Libya, etc. I mean, this is how Turkish security mind, mindset right. is, is formed over the years. So they have, they have to, they, they think that they have to control areas that is, you know, cross-border areas, etc. So Erdogan could not carry on with this politics anymore. And it already has reached its aims. So in terms of relations with, 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 with Greece, it's, it's also a bargaining chip for, for Erdogan. He's not sincere that he, he, he's just using it as a, as, as both to, to portray himself as, as a leader who is uh, protecting Turkish interests in the Aegean 
I mean, it's the, the, the easiest way for Erdogan to, to spark a crisis is with relations with, with, with Greece. Mm. So Erdogan makes a statement, a silly statement, and then a crisis erupts. I mean, you don't have to do something very substantial to, to make a cri- crisis. And of course, Greece. this is to, to play to the domestic audience within yes, Turkey. Yes, yes, yes. But I, I'm not... But the deal that Erdogan has made with the West is that he's not going to play the troublemaker, troublemaker in the region anymore. And I'm expecting more conciliatory approach from Erdogan in, in the Aegean, but less flexible approach in Cyprus. So he has to balance it with, with Turkish domestic forces as well. So that, that's my prediction regarding Erdogan's future a course of action, but uh, I should uh, I should be very constrained because I, I, it's, it's usually not very easy to to predict Erdogan's uh, actions, uh, especially in the, in the in the foreseeable future. Okay, so 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 your best guess is that he will engage in talks, but not really look for any kind of tangible outcome. No, I'm not, I'm not expecting that. Uh, mm-hmm. He he will play the 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 leader of a of a compromise that he's going because when he's cornered, uh, he he he's, he has no problem uh, in making compromises, making uh, deals. So he, he he starts negotiations. There's no problem with him. He's going to meet Netanyahu probably. I mean, he's coming from an Islamic political culture, quite anti-Israel, but he can, he can do such uh, extreme moves. Starting negotiations with, with Greece is not a big deal for Erdogan. Uh, the essence of Erdogan's policy is that it's open-ended. Erdogan can, can start crises and Erdogan can make un, unexpected moves to solve problems. Like, Currently, Turkey, Turkey is undertaking a normalization process with Armenia. Mm. And his audience does not pay attention to that. He can make such, it, it, such it's moves. Not seen, it's not seen as controversial for him because he has decided to do it and it's, that's and just what it is. He can get away with his yeah. uh, uh, electorate. I mean, that, because the electorate has full full confidence in Erdogan. They think that what Erdogan is doing is something that is right to do. So he, he's doing it for a reason. So the, the, he has the, the audience, his audience has such kind of a belief. So he's using that leverage. Okay. And Ilhan, you, you mentioned Cyprus, so let, let's finish off with that. Where do you see Cyprus fitting in to the approach Erdogan will take during his latest term in, in office? Is he focused on a two-state solution there, or is there a chance of reunification talks resuming? I'm not expecting any uh, talks uh, with the aim of uh, unification for, for, for a while. Cyprus is the last bastion that Erdogan can use in foreign policy. He, he is hard on that. He, he, has, he thinks that he has an upper hand in, 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 in when it comes to Cyprus. So he's, he's using the two-state uh, solution, the, the Desenivit rhetoric, uh, which is a, a, a quite new, and he's using it also as, as a bargaining chip. But for now, it's also, it also helps Erdogan 
to defend his position uh, towards the towards the in the face of the nationalist forces domestically. So he's not going to give it give it up uh, soon. I'm not expecting any substantial breakthrough in Cyprus in the foreseeable future or in, in, in next year or something. But again, I mean, when it comes to Erdogan, it's sometimes very difficult. Erdogan can can sit for for negotiation table for, for, for Cyprus, provided that he's going to get something quite important. Yeah. Ilhan, we'll have to wait, wait and see. Uh, y- your insight has been very useful, and I think that the, the, the point you make and the, the key takeaway here is that Erdogan, after being in power for so many years and, and having a faithful following and a strong power base, is is able to shape foreign policy as as he wants and as he he goes along. Yes, uh, exactly. Because I mean, domestically, the civil society is, has been weakened to a great extent. Political opposition is in disarray after the after the election defeat and advance has won the elections and he's, he's, he thinks that he's powerful, except the economic conditions and financial strains. Other than that, he's, he thinks that he's in a position to make strong bargaining uh, vis-a-vis his opponents. Okay, Ilhan, let's leave it there. Thank you very much for your time and your insight. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was Ilhan Uzgel, a foreign policy analysis and commentator based in Ankara, speaking to us here at the Agora. I hope that the conversation sheds more light on what to expect from Turkish President Erdogan over the next few years. I think our guest provided some useful insight into his country's very particular leader and someone that we in Greece and the West as a whole interpret incorrectly time after time. And that's where we'll leave it for not only this episode at the fourth series of the Agora. Thanks for listening to us during this series. The Greek elections, of course, featured heavily. Well, after all, there were two of them, and uh, the election campaign also seemed to start last September, unofficially at least. We've also covered lots of other interesting topics, though, such as the issues with the quality and dependence of Greece's media, the surveillance scandal, of course, the sinking of a boat carrying hundreds of migrants, and even the potential return of the Parthenon marbles. I hope we've kept you informed. We're going to take a break now, but we'll be back in September when we'll have something to celebrate. To find out more, keep an eye on the Agora, which is brought to you by Macropolis, of course, www.macropolis.gr. That's Macropolis with a C. Until then, from me and from my co-host Phoebe Fronista, who is behind the scenes for this episode, stay cool and enjoy the rest of your summer. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.